is speaker presenter Lyle Southwell presenting the ancient codes of Bible prophecy in his live series called The Prophetic Code. You'll be amazed as he cracks the ancient codes of Bible prophecy in ways you have never heard before. Well, good evening, friends. It's so good to be able to be with you all here this evening. And it's, I want to begin by congratulating you all on taking an interest in history as it relates to what is taking place in our world right now. So many people are just oblivious to what is happening. They are happily entertained. They're not taking any notice. And if you do not know and understand your history, you will not understand where we are in the history of our world at this time. And so as we begin this evening, we're going to begin with prayer. As a Christian, I always begin a program, a series of presentations like this with prayer, and I invite you to join me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that we're able to gather here together this evening to study the history of the past and to see how it applies to our day. We pray that as we do so now that you will send the presence of your Holy Spirit to be very close to us. We pray that you'll fill this room with the presence of your Holy Spirit. And Father, we pray that we will not just have an informative time here this evening, but that regardless of what our spiritual background might or might not be, that we will have a spiritual experience together as well. And so we ask for your blessing and your presence in Jesus' name. Amen. Ancient Egypt is a fascinating location. You see, it is combined with a, a dry climate, combined with a water supply, a constant water supply with the River Nile that provides for the opportunity to build up a great civilization. At the same time, there is no rain in this particular area, and so it is the best preserved of all the ancient civilizations today. It's a place of mysterious temples and gigantic sculptures, tombs that weigh millions of tons, the greatest sun temple that the world has ever seen, Karnak, covering over 600 acres. It's the home of the goddess Isis and the worship of the sacred feminine. Not only that, but we find that it is a place of mysterious symbols that we're going to spend some time looking at in this particular series and fabulous treasure. In fact, the treasure of Egypt is probably what it is almost best known for. However, the most iconic symbol of ancient Egypt, of course, are the great pyramids. And so we ask ourselves the question, What was the purpose of these pyramids? What was their origin? How were they built? These are still some of the most mysterious structures in the world. And we're going to look at some of the reasons why as we work through our presentation this evening. Now, of course, originally the pharaohs did not build pyramids to be buried in. They built a simple mastaba, which is a square Um, area of bricks or of stone that would go over the top of their tomb. The idea was that they would be buried with fabulous amounts of treasure and they'd place this big block of stone and rock on top of their tomb as a way of sealing that treasure in so that nobody could steal it. Of course, all they really did was create a big landmark that said, here's where you will find buried treasure. However, the mastaba, the square mastaba, was how they were originally buried. Now, when we come down to the time of Pharaoh Zosa, 
Zosa built his mastaba and he thought that that looked pretty good. And so then he added a second one on top of it. And then he kept adding one on top of another on top of another. And you'll see you have one on top of another on top of another all the way to the top. And you had the first pyramid that was ever built. The second pyramid was never finished. And then we come down to Seneferu. Now, Seneferu managed to build three pyramids. And you wonder, well, how could somebody be buried in three places at one time? You know, even a person who claims to be a god is going to struggle to be buried in three places at one time. However, the first one that he built collapsed and just the uh, core of it is left there today. Then he made a second attempt. And as he made the second attempt, he got halfway up in building his pyramid and it started to have stress fractures in it. It was on the verge of collapsing. And so he evened out the angle to place less pressure on it. And thus he was able to finish his pyramid. However, it doesn't look quite right, does it? You can't really have a bent pyramid. So he wasn't happy with that. Then he managed to build a third pyramid at a lesser angle. Of course, this pyramid held um, quite a nice pyramid. But the unfortunate thing is that he didn't get to stay in any of his pyramids. Now, these early pyramids were not particularly accurate. They were not particularly square. They were fairly rough and reasonably primitive. In fact, you could say that they were somewhat experimental. But when you go from this pyramid to the next pyramids, there is a gigantic leap forward in the technology, the engineering, and you go from these fairly rough ones to the greatest pyramids that were ever built. And of course, these are the great pyramids of Giza, the three big famous ones that we know of so well today. Now, as we consider these big ones right here on the edge of the Sahara Desert, let's take a moment to consider some of the engineering and the mathematics that went into the construction of these pyramids. If we take the biggest one out of them all, the Pyramid of Khufu, Pharaoh Khufu, this pyramid weighs more than 5 million Tons. It covers an area of over 10 football fields. It contains two and a half million limestone blocks. Each of those limestone blocks weighs on average two and a half tons, and some of them are up to 15 tons in weight. Here you see some of the accuracy with which they were cut right here. In fact, they're so accurately cut, you cannot slide a piece of paper in between those great stones. Now, the fascinating thing about these particular pyramids is that they were all constructed, all three of them, within a period of just 70 years. Now, for that to take place, you need to get your head around the fact that these big blocks of stone weighing around two and a half tons each were placed in position at a rate of, on average, one every two minutes. And you wonder, how is that possible? And this is one of the great mysteries of the pyramids that to this day, nobody has ever been able to solve. Of course, there are an abundance of theories as to how they were able to accomplish that. 
When you go to the king's burial chamber, you'll find that it was made of granite. And look at how perfectly these hard granite stones were cut and fitted into place. And of course, this is in a time when there were no diamond stone cutting wheels, no cranes, no trucks, no forklifts, no hydraulics, not even any iron. Now, the Great Pyramid is precisely level and exactly square. It's one of the most perfectly aligned structures in the world. In fact, if you look at the dimensions of the pyramid, the dimensions and geometry of the pyramid are such that if a vertical circle is imagined whose center is the top of the pyramid and the radius is the height of the pyramid, the circumference of that circle is exactly the circumference of the base of the pyramid, That is the sum of the length of the four sides at the base. This feature shows a knowledge of the value of pi centuries ahead of the Greeks. Of course, so often we speak about the Greeks and their engineering and mathematics. And of course, that knowledge originated long before the Greeks recorded it for us. And we see the evidence of it in the ancient world. Now, as we continue on our investigation of this great pyramid right here, We find that, once again, due to the angle of the sides of the pyramid versus its latitude, it casts no shadow at noon during the spring equinox or the festival of Isis, or Ishtar, as she is otherwise known. It's perfectly aligned due north. Not magnetic north, but due north. And so we know that the ancient Egyptians were able to calculate the position of due north. The tomb chamber... When we come to the tomb chamber, we find that it's made out of granite, hard granite. The size of it is exactly 10 Egyptian cubits by 20 Egyptian cubits. But when the archaeologists were measuring it and they went went to measure the height of it, they found the height of it was 10.172 cubits. And they were wondering, well, why is this so? Why have perfect dimensions at the base and then this odd height going up until they measured the diagonals. You see the diagonal of the wall on one side is 15 cubits exactly and the diagonal of the chamber is 25 cubits. They had arranged it in such a way that they could make a perfectly square room. The sarcophagus right here is made out of one solid piece of granite that has been hollowed out. And the question that comes up with this particular sarcophagus is this. How do you hollow out a piece of granite like that when the hardest metal that you have is copper? Now, archaeologists have determined that if you were to hollow out this particular sarcophagus using copper drills, it would take at least 18 years. And once you have done that, how do you make the corners square? That's a problem that nobody has found a solution to. Now, when we consider these great pyramids, we need to ask ourselves the question. When you look at the ones that were built before this and you find that they're very very rough and fairly primitive in comparison to these, why is there this sudden and dramatic leap forward in technology and engineering? And what brought it about? Well, to answer that question, we need to travel to a much older civilization indeed. 
a civilization that was far more advanced than Egypt as far as mathematics and engineering went. And of course, to do that, we're going to travel to the other end of the fertile crescent, to the area of the Chaldeans and the Babylonians in the Euphrates and Tigris river valleys. Here we have the great ziggurat of Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, if we consider the dimensions of this one, we find that it was originally exactly 300 feet by 300 feet by 300 feet or 91.4 meters. The same base as the height. But the most interesting thing about the great ziggurat of Ur is that when you look at the walls of it that appear to be straight, they are not. In fact, the surprising thing is that there is not a single straight line in the structure. Each wall from base to top and horizontally from corner to corner is a convex curve. Well, why did they build it that way? A curve so slight as not to be apparent but giving to the eye an illusion of strength where a straight line might have seemed to sag under the weight of the superstructure. The architect thus employed the principle of entasis. And so we find that when you go to the Babylonian and uh, civilizations of Ur and the area of the Euphrates River, you find that they were far more advanced than what you have in Egypt at this particular time. And of course, this is where the Egyptians got their knowledge from. So what was the origin of the civilizations of the Euphrates River Valley? Well, these cities were founded by a man by the name of Nimrod. And this goes back almost back to the time of Noah. In fact, he was a grandson of Noah. He built the city of Babel or Babylon. And from there, he built the first great empire built on the principles of globalism. We think that globalism is a new thing today. It is not new. The principles and concepts that are driving globalism today are exactly the same ones that have been used by ancient empires down through history. And if we learn our history, history, if we know what took place in the past, then we will be able to understand what is taking place around us right now. He built these great cities down here. He conquered up to the north and established his first great empire. So who was Nimrod? Well, Nimrod was the first great empire builder to set himself up in opposition to the government of God. As he did so, there came a time when his empire was scattered and as a result of it being scattered throughout the world, as people traveled out from this first great civilization, they traveled with them, they carried with them the story of Nimrod and the worship system that he had established. One of the things that you'll find when you study globalization and the great empires of the past is that the driving force in every single one of these empires was religion. Now, when we study globalization today, what you're going to find is that nothing has changed. You might look out at the world and say, well, this is all about politics, this is all about power, this is all about money, but as soon as you start to scratch the surface of what is actually going on, you are going to find that the driving force in our world right now is religion. And so the religion of Nimrod spread. Of course, Nimrod looked for the greatest power in the universe that he could find to associate himself with. He recognized that without the sun, there would be no life. 
And so he associated himself with the sun as the most powerful force in nature. After he died, his wife Semiramis or Ishtar or Isis, some of the different names that she went by, claimed that Nimrod had ascended to the sun and continued to rule from the sun. And as the people spread out from here around the world, the worship of the sun became universal. And you can travel to any part of the world today and you'll find the worship of the sun has traveled to that part of the world. Of course, uh, Nimrod uh, became known by many different names as the languages changed. The Babylonians called them Shamash, the Egyptians Ra, the Assyrians Baal. Moloch was the Canaanite name, Mithra the Persian name, Helios to the Greeks, Hu to the Druids, Sura Rejveda to the Indians, Aditya Bandhu to the Buddhists, Quetzalcoatl to the Mexicans, Sol Invictus to the Romans. And we could go on and on and on down through the list. After he died, his wife, Semiramis, seized the throne. And in coming to power, she claimed that Nimrod had ascended to the sun and continued to rule from there. Of course, as the legend spread out from Babylon, she also was known by many different names in many different parts of the world. She was called Ishtar, Isis, Astarte, Iastre, Iostre, Ashtoreth, Azuli, Kali, and Kuan Yin. Now, one of the fascinating things about these two people is how some of the traditions and concepts that they established are still with us to this very day. You see, sometime after Nimrod had died, Ishtar fell pregnant. But it was a little bit too long after he had died. And so it, it, it produced the possibility of a scandal. How could she be pregnant if Nimrod is not there? Oh, well, she immediately claimed immaculate conception and she said, Nimrod in the sun has impregnated me and the child that I'm going to give birth to is the child of the sun. She gave birth to a child. His name was Tammuz. She gave herself the title the Queen of Heaven and the Mother of God because Tammuz was apparently the son of the sun. Now, of course, Tammuz was born on December 25. What do we call that day today? Yeah, that's right. That's Christmas, isn't it? And sometime later, as Tammuz grew up and, and became a young man, he was actually killed in a hunting accident, hunting a wild boar. This accident took place 40 days before the annual festival of Ishtar. Now, Ishtar could not claim the sun for herself because Nimrod had already taken it. So she chose the moon. And, of course, the moon became an appropriate symbol for a woman and the sacred feminine. Ishtar was somewhat of a nymphomaniac. And the religion that built up around the religion of Nimrod was involved in fertility rites. And as the moon had a monthly cycle and the woman had a monthly cycle, it was seen appropriate that this became her symbol. Every year she had a festival. And her festival was associated and lined up with the moon. In fact, her festival would take, on the, take place on the first Sunday after the first full moon following the spring equinox and it was a fertility festival. Tammuz died 40 days before this festival and so she mourned for him for 40 days and then the festival took place. 
Now, of course, the festival of Ishtar being a fertility festival was associated with fertility symbols, such as eggs and rabbits. The rabbit, because of its ability to reproduce, I've had pet rabbits, I know how that works. And chickens, etc. So let me ask you a question. Do we have a festival today that comes um, on the first Sunday after the first full moon following, following the spring, spring equinox that varies by up to six weeks from one year to an, another so that it can follow the cycle of the moon? And is it preceded by 40 days of austerity? Of course we do. We call that Lent and Easter or Ishtar's festival. Now, I'm a Christian, and I find it fascinating how these symbols from the very ancient past have come all the way down through, and we find them even within Christianity today, when, of course, they have no origin within Christianity. But we'll talk more about that as we go through our um, presentations here. So we go back to our original question. And our original question is this. We know that the Babylonians were far advanced over the Egyptians when it came to technology, when it came to mathematics and engineering. So how was the technology and the learning transferred from this end of the Fertile Crescent to this end, from Babylon to Egypt? Well, we don't know exactly. However, we do know this that the dramatic change in the knowledge of the Egyptians in mathematics, science, astronomy, uh, engineering, coincided with the arrival in Egypt of one of the most influential Mesopotamians of all time. So here was a man who was influential with the rulers of both Mesopotamia and Egypt. Here was a man who situated himself strategically in the middle of that fertile crescent between those two great competing world empires. Here was a man who was the founder of two races of people still in existence today and is seen by as the father of three of the world's greatest religions. Well, who was that man? Of course it was. It was Abraham. Abraham of Ur, originating in Mesopotamia, traveling to Egypt. When he arrives in Egypt, suddenly you have this massive advance in their understanding and knowledge of science and astronomy and technology and mathematics and engineering. Of course, we take that from the latest chronologies. Now, Abraham of Ur was a fascinating character, creating this link. It's interesting how Josephus describes this event. Josephus, the Jewish historian, said this. He wrote that Abraham communicated to them the Egyptians' arithmetic and delivered to them the science of astronomy. For before Abraham came into Egypt, they were unacquainted with those parts of learning, for that science came from the Chaldeans into Egypt, the Mesopotamians. So Abraham may have helped the Egyptians to achieve the mathematical accuracy found in Khufu's pyramid. And so you had these two great competing world empires, and as Egypt began to climb in dominance, 
Mesopotamia began to wane and to fall into ruin. And for the next thousand years, first Egypt and then Assyria dominated the world until we come down to the time of Nebuchadnezzar II who re-established the Babylonian Empire. Now Nebuchadnezzar II brought that empire back and he saw himself as being the spiritual heir of Nimrod who had founded the first Babylonian Empire. And his desire was to rebuild that empire and to reestablish the religion of Nimrod in its purity that had changed over the centuries since it had fallen into disrepair. Nebuchadnezzar II of the Neo-Babylonian Empire built the greatest city in the ancient world, three times bigger than Athens or Rome, the other great cities of the past. Here you find just a very small section of the Ishtar Gate. In fact, this is the smallest part of the Ishtar Gate that was taken and transported to the Berlin Museum. When you actually see the model of it there in the museum, you find that it was much greater than this indeed. Now, as we consider Nebuchadnezzar and his effect on the world and how he was able to conquer the world, travel down... um, as he travelled down towards Egypt on his Palestinian campaign, we find that he came to the city of Jerusalem. He conquered the city of Jerusalem. He captured the people of that city and he gathered together from there all of the young men. Now, he had an interesting strategy because typically what you would do in the ancient past was that when you conquered another nation, you would gather together everybody who was important. You would take them back to your capital city. You would publicly execute them there to show your power and your dominance over the whole world. Nebuchadnezzar did something different. He desired to build the greatest empire the world had ever seen and he wanted to gather together all of the learning and knowledge that there was into one place. And so he gathered together all of the men, particularly the young men who were educated, who were of noble birth and took them back to Babylon to place them in his schools and to educate them there. As a result of this, something unique took place with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar received a dream. He received a prophecy. And this prophecy spans two and a half thousand years from his day right down through our day and into the future. We're going to take a little bit of time to look at this prophecy. I find it fascinating. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was one of the very few authors of Scripture who was not Jewish. He was not of Hebrew descent. He did not even worship the same God as the Hebrews. He was a polytheist. He worshipped a multitude of gods and yet the God of heaven gave him this particular prophecy. We find it in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 2. So if you take out the Bibles that you all received as you were coming in this evening and if you turn vaguely towards the middle of the Bible, you find Isaiah, then you find Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. The Bible says this, In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep broke from him. And the king commanded to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, for to show the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. 
So here we have Nebuchadnezzar. He has a very significant dream. He knows it is significant. He calls all of the wise men, the counselors together to explain to him what he has dreamed. And of course, this was something they were familiar with, something that he'd done many times in the past. The ancients placed a lot of weight in their dreams. And so they all come together and they're all probably thinking, well, this is going to be easy. We'll get our heads together. We'll figure out something kind of vague that is guaranteed to be fulfilled. And then we'll all go home to spend the rest of our day with our families. Well, it didn't quite work out like that. Let me run through the story with you very quickly. And here's what I want you all to do. When you go home this evening for homework... You didn't know you are going to get homework here, did you? For homework, I want you to read Daniel chapter 2. It's fairly simple, straightforward and explanatory. But let me give you the highlights very quickly. So he calls in all the wise men and they say, well, his counsellors, they say, well, tell us what you dreamed and we will tell you the interpretation. There was only one problem. Nebuchadnezzar had forgotten what he had dreamed. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, well, yeah, no problem. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to first tell me what I dreamed and then tell me what the interpretation of that dream is because it's gone from me. I can't remember it. I don't know whether you've ever had that experience, but I know I sure have. There been times when I've been, you know, dreaming in the middle of the night and it's so vivid and you wake up and your heart's going, you know, thump, 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 thump in your chest and you're thinking, wow, that was just the most, the most vivid dream I'm going to tell. I'm going to tell Shell, I'm going to tell my wife all about that in the morning. You go back to sleep. You wake up in the morning, you're sitting there and you're thinking, you know, I know I dreamed something last night and it's like, Ugh. What was it? You can barely remember it, if at all. You ever had that kind of experience? Yeah, we've all had that kind of experience, haven't we? Well, this is what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. And so the wise men, they get a little bit worried at this particular point because Nebuchadnezzar was a tyrant. He had ultimate power. And because he had ultimate power, he was the ultimate tyrant. He was not the kind of person that you wanted to upset. And so the discussion goes backwards and forwards between his counsellors and the king and the counsellors saying, you know, this is, this, we, we can't do this. And the king saying, well, you will do this because if you don't do this, here's what I will do. I will kill every single one of you. I will kill your families and I will turn your houses into a heap of ashes. And that was no idle threat. He was not the kind of person that you wanted to get on the wrong side of. Well, it gets a little bit worse as you go down through the passage Because in verse 11, eventually the Chaldeans, his scientific elite, in verse 11 they said, it is a rare thing that the king requires. And there is none other that can show it before the king except the gods whose living place is not with flesh, not with humans. Uh Uh-oh. They just goofed up. You see, in the past, they had always claimed that the way they were able to interpret dreams was because they were in communication with the gods. So if the only person who can explain what the king dreamed are the gods, well, then why not go and ask them? So Nebuchadnezzar completely loses it at this particular point and says here, for this cause the king was angry and very furious and commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. Now, of course, this is in his second year 
And people, when they came to Babylon, were trained. When they were captured and brought to Babylon, they were trained in the schools of Babylon for three years. And so Daniel wasn't there with um, his friends at that particular time. They were just students. The command goes out. The leader of Nebuchadnezzar's royal guard goes out to gather together all of the counsellors. Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, that's it. I'm going to wipe them all out and start over again. In doing so, he gathers up all of their students as well. And he comes to Daniel. And the Bible says that when he came to Daniel, Daniel went in, in verse 16, and desired of the king that he would give him time and that he would show the king the interpretation. And so then Daniel went home that evening and he gathered three of his friends around him and they had a prayer meeting and I can guarantee that that prayer meeting was a serious prayer meeting. You see, their lives were on the line and if your life was on the line, then your prayer meeting would be a serious prayer meeting, wouldn't it? And that night, the great God of heaven, the same one who had given Nebuchadnezzar the dream in the first place, gave exactly the same dream to Daniel. In fact, he did three important things. Number one, he gave Daniel the dream. Number two, he gave Daniel the interpretation of the dream. And number three, and most importantly, he made sure that unlike Nebuchadnezzar, he could remember all the details when he woke up the next day. And so the next day, Daniel goes in and stands before the king. And Daniel starts to explain to Nebuchadnezzar exactly what he dreamed several nights ago. I don't know about you, but if somebody did that to me, that would catch my attention, isn't that so? And so what was it? You can read, of course, uh, the dream. It begins in verse 31, but let's put it up here on the screen. Daniel says this. He says, this is what you saw, Nebuchadnezzar. You saw a great image. This great image standing on the earth had a head of gold, a chest of silver. When you come down to the thighs, they were made of brass and the legs of the image were made of iron all the way down at the feet of the image. It was a mixture of iron and clay, and then you saw a stone hurtling through space, and as it came flying down towards this image, it hit the image on its feet and smashed it to a thousand pieces, and the wind blew all the pieces away. And then that stone that hit the image became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. And so he says, this is what you dreamed. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar remembers it exactly as Daniel tells it. Then we move on in the passage and we go down a few more verses. We come to this verse in verse 36 where it says, this is the dream. And we will tell the interpretation before the king. I find this interesting. Who's we? Daniel's the only one who knows the interpretation, isn't he? Who's we? That's plural, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. That's God. Daniel says, God and I. He's in a prime position to big note himself before the king, but he pays recognition to, that, to the fact that without God, he is nothing. He begins. Verse 37, you, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. Wherever the children of men live, the beasts of the field, the fowls of the heaven, has he given into your hand and has made you ruler over them all, 
You are this head of gold. So let's put up our image over here and let's begin to work our way through it. We do not have to guess as to the identity of what the head of gold of the image symbolizes. The Bible plainly tells us it symbolizes Nebuchadnezzar. And the thing you'll find as you work through the passage and in Bible prophecy, a king is synonymous with his kingdom. And so we put up here that this one symbolizes the kingdom or the empire of Babylon. That would have made Nebuchadnezzar feel pretty good, I would imagine. Gold was a good thing to be symbolized. Gold was the symbol of the sun. And so what we find is that we have four different metals, gold, silver, brass, iron. This is a symbolic, a message in code. Codes in metals. And so if the first metal is a symbol of an empire or a nation, we would expect the next ones to be the same. Isn't that so? That's exactly what we find. Let's keep reading. Verse 39, And after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to you, and a third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, for as much as iron breaks in pieces, and subdues all things. And as iron that breaks all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. And so very simply, friends, what we have here is a succession of four different metals decreasing in value but increasing in strength. And the Bible tells us very simply that this is a succession of four great empires. Now, there are two ways of finding out what these are. You can go to Daniel chapter 8 where the vision is repeated again and the Bible will tell you in plain, simple language exactly what they are. Or you can go home and look it up on Wikipedia and ask yourself the question, who was it that conquered the Babylonian Empire? And of course, the answer is very simple. The Babylonians were conquered by a coalition government made up of the Medes and the Persians. Cyrus the Persian, he established what became known as the Persian Empire. Well, who was it that conquered the Persians? Who knows? That's right. Greece. Greece, Alexander the Great, conquered the Persian Empire and established the Greek Empire. And who was it that conquered the Greeks and established an iron monarchy? Of course, we understand that is imperial Rome right there that established an empire that lasted three times longer and was three times bigger than any previous empire. But then we come down to the feet. The feet are made of a mixture, aren't they? They're not just one metal, are they? They're metal and clay. Well, let's read what the Bible has to say about this because this is where it gets particularly fascinating. You see, history repeats itself. Isn't that the number one rule of history? History repeats itself. And so if you've got this empire conquered by this empire, conquered by this empire, conquered by this empire, you would expect this one, Imperial Rome, to be conquered by the next great empire, wouldn't you? Did that take place? No. Didn't take place. Did not happen. So what does the Bible say? Daniel chapter 2 and verse 41. It says this. And where you saw the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron for as much as you saw the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. So the Bible speaks about the feet of iron and clay, and the Bible says that the kingdom will be divided and that there will be some strong nations and some weak nations. And then it goes on in the next verse. 
And it says this, verse 43, And where you saw the iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not stick one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. So the Bible says it's going to disintegrate, it's going to fall into part, it's going to be separate nations, some will be weak, some will be strong, and they won't stick together. Isn't that so? Okay, so let's put that up there then. What time period does this bring us down to? Well, of course, this then brings us down to the time period of the coming of the rock. Well, in Scripture, the question is this. What does the rock symbolize? And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we have our answer. Page 463. Of course, we need a definition for what the rock is symbolic of. The Bible says in verse 4, And they did drink of the same spiritual drink, and they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was who? Christ. So in the coming of the rock, you have a symbol of the coming of Christ. So here we have a prophecy that brings us all the way down to the very end, to the return of Jesus Christ himself. Now, as we look at this particular prophecy here, we have to ask ourselves this question. When you come to the study of Scripture, this is a unique book. Out of all the sacred books in existence, this one is unique because it is full of prophecy. We have just one prophecy here, but nearly one-third of this book, and it's a big one, is full of prophecy. Now, prophecy by nature is something that demands to be investigated, to be either proven or disproven, and it provides evidence for the accuracy, the authenticity of the claims made in the book. Isn't that so? In other words, if you've got a whole bunch of prophecies and they're a whole bunch of rubbish, how much are you going to take notice of the rest of the book? Of course you're not. But what happens then if all of these prophecies have been accurately fulfilled? Now, if we go back right here, I want to highlight for you a couple of significant words. In verse 43, it says this, and speaking about the feet, and whereas you saw iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not stick one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. Let me highlight for you five short words words. They shall not stick. Those five short words right there throughout history have brought to nothing, brought to an end the greatest plans, the greatest strategies of the greatest military leaders of our world, the greatest political leaders of our world, the greatest statesmen of our world, nobody has been able to defy those five short words. And ever since those words came into effect, they have been trying to do so. And still, they do not stop trying to do so. You see, the Bible says that the empire, the old Roman empire would disintegrate and nobody would be able to stick it back together again regardless of how hard they tried and that they would try. Now, we can run down through history and we can see attempt after attempt after attempt after attempt. Charlemagne was one of the early ones who tried to pull it off. Um, The one who probably came the closest was Napoleon. 
In fact, when Napoleon read this particular prophecy right here, in a fit of rage, he took the Bible and hurled it across the room. But then we come down a little bit further again. And what happens? Did people stop trying? We come down to Queen Victoria. Of course, she was the grandmother of Europe. Her strategy, the Bible says they will mingle themselves with the seed of men. In her day, she managed to get all of the royal families united together by marriage. You know, maybe we can do it this way. We've tried so many other ways of sticking the empire together. Did that work? No, because a few short years later, they all had a big family fight, didn't they? What do we call that family fight? We call it the First World War. And you have all of these letters from all of these leaders of different countries in the First World War, and they're all writing here, Dear Cousin, I'm not going to invade your country. The next week, across the border they come. They're all related to each other. Kaiser Wilhelm, when he saw this prophecy, was so enraged that he searched until he found in the Cathedral of Metz a statue of the prophet Daniel. And he cut off its head and replaced it with his own head. But he wasn't able to defy the prophecy, was he? Who came after him? Of course, the next one in line was Adolf Hitler. He said, prophecies of Daniel 2 do not fit into my plans for Western Europe. However, at least he was honest enough to take the Kaiser's head off of the statue of Daniel and put Daniel's head back on because he said, Daniel's prophecy still stands. But was Adolf Hitler able to accomplish it? No, Adolf Hitler failed as well. It's interesting some of the stories that came out at this particular time because you will remember the history of the Second World War. Adolf Hitler began with the Blitzkrieg, the lightning war. The world had never seen warfare like it before and in a very short space of time you had numbers of countries that were falling in a matter of weeks. No one had seen a military campaign like this and very, very rapidly you had some of the greatest nations of Europe that had fallen and people started, particularly people who were preaching the Bible, were sort of like, oh, maybe we should be a little bit careful about how we preach about Daniel chapter 2. Well, there was a man here in Australia by the name of George Burnside and he set up a big tent and outside that big tent he put a big banner that read, why Hitler cannot win the war. And so Hitler is doing this massive, unstoppable drive through Europe and George Burnside is preaching why he cannot win the war and he's preaching it straight out of Daniel chapter 2 because the Bible said they shall not stick together ever again. That was a bold move. And here in Australia, that was a patriotic move. What about on the other side of the lines? Let me tell you the story of Franz Hassel, an officer drafted in Hitler's first draft, a pioneer officer, engineer. He was involved in the invasion of Russia. And of course, as the Germans went into Russia, the Russians were just falling back, falling back, falling back, falling back, falling back because the best defence they had was winter when they could operate and nobody else could. And of course, you can read the history of it, how that the, the Germans were surrounding one army after another, after another, after another, and particularly the, the army that Franz Hassel was um, connected with, Army Group South. They penetrated further east into Russia than any other German unit all the way down into the Caucasus. One night, while they're on this massive advance, 
through into Russia, absolutely unstoppable. Franz Hassel is sharing with his friend in his tent that it was actually impossible for Hitler to win the war. Now, of course, on that side of the war, that's not a patriotic statement. That is a treasonous statement, a statement that carries the death penalty. And it's good to have mates. It happened to leak out and his superior officers heard about it. And they called him in. They're all sitting around a table and they asked him to explain himself. We understand you said that Hitler cannot win the war. Why do you say that? And so Franz Hassel pulled out his pocket Bible and inside the cover of his pocket Bible he had a small postcard with a picture of the statue of Daniel chapter 2 on it. And for the next three hours he gave them a detailed point by point, detail by detail study on Daniel chapter 2. We've only just hit the high points here this evening. There is so much more here that we could look at. At the end of that Bible study, he was dismissed without his officers saying anything. But from that day forward, as they are doing this massive advance into Russia, his superior officers began to stockpile fuel for their retreat. Now, for those of you who know their history, when Germany eventually fell, most of the German soldiers were trapped inside Russia and sent to the death camps of Siberia, and very few came back. Franz Hassel's unit went further east than any other German unit and they got all the way back out to the American lines. And you ask, well, how were they able to accomplish that? The answer is very simple. They were able to do that because they were able to drive. They were able to drive because they had fuel. They had fuel because they had hung their lives on the prophecy of this book right here. You see, in two and a half thousand years, there is not one detail of this prophecy that has failed. And the Bible says the next great event in the prophecy is the coming of the rock, the return of Jesus Christ. So the question that comes up is this. Are we able to actually trust the prophecy and say, yes, this is the next great event? Well, let's look at what Daniel says in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel finishes his explanation. And down at the end of the explanation, in verse 45, he says, For as much as you saw, the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, that it broke in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. Here you have a teenager 17, 18 years old, standing in front of the monarch of the universe and he says, the dream is certain and the interpretation thereof is sure. Two and a half thousand years later and there is not one single detail of this prophecy that has failed. Now, can you tell the future with that kind of accuracy? No, we can't. Obviously, we have here the intervention of a supernatural force. Isn't that so? Daniel said it back then. Cyrus the Persian comes along and he has shown the prophecies of Scripture right here. And in honour of these prophecies, he commands the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. But how much of the prophecy can Cyrus see? He can just see a little bit, can't he? 
Then Alexander the Great comes along and he goes on the warpath and he is smashing one city after another, after another, after another. And then he comes to the city of Jerusalem and he does the complete opposite in absolute honor and reverence. He goes into the city. He worships in the court of the Gentiles. And his generals are like, what's going on here? Every other city is just smashed and destroyed. And here he's gone into this one and he's worshipping. And he explains to his generals that he's been shown the prophecies of Daniel chapter 2. Cyrus the Persian could see this much. Alexander the Great could see this much. And we can see this much. Not one single detail of the prophecy has been has failed. And the great thing about this prophecy, friends, is that it points us to Jesus Christ. The important thing about that within Scripture is that this is a principle of understanding the prophecies of the Bible. Something that some people miss. All of the prophecies of the Bible are about Jesus. They are all about telling us and centered on Jesus. In fact, the Bible is a unique book. It was written over a period of 1,600 years by 44 different authors. And yet, throughout that entire book, there is just one theme. You see, the Bible can be divided into a number of different sections. You have the law, you have the history, you have the poetry, you have the prophecy, you have the gospels, you have the acts, you have the epistles, and you have revelation. The law is the foundation of Jesus Christ. The history is the preparation for Jesus Christ. The poetry is the aspiration of Jesus Christ. The prophecy that we're studying here is the expectation of Jesus Christ. The gospels are the manifestation of Jesus Christ. The acts, the proclamation of Jesus Christ. The epistles, the interpretation of Jesus Christ. And the revelation that we're going to study in this particular series, the consummation of Jesus Christ. Friends, it is all about Jesus Christ. Now, friends, as we consider this prophecy that is founded on Jesus Christ and points us to his return, let's ask ourselves a question for a moment. If you were a gambling person, and I don't recommend gambling, don't get me wrong, I don't think you should ever get involved in something that is addictive. But if you were a gambling person and you saw something like this, you saw 10 different points and every single one of them went, yes, 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 yes. What would you bet about number 10? You would put your money on number 10 being fulfilled as well, wouldn't you? Well, let's consider the prophecy of Daniel chapter 2. When we go to Daniel chapter 2, we find it would say, it said, there would only be four empires. Then you would have Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Then Rome would be the strongest. Then it would disintegrate. Then the empire would be made up of weak and strong nations that would never be united again. Let me ask you a question. Have they ever stopped to try unite Europe? Go home this evening and switch on your television. And as you see the European Union struggling and on the verge of disintegration, this prophecy is being fulfilled in front of our eyes right now. The evidence is right there. And that leaves us with only one last point, friends, and that is the return of Jesus Christ. Now, I have to tell you this this evening that out of all of the great events of this prophecy and out of all the exciting things that have taken place down through history, this is by far the greatest event of them all. And more than anything else, this is the event that I am looking forward to. Do you know why I'm looking forward to this one right here? 
Let me share with you why. I am looking forward to this event because Jesus is my friend and I'm looking forward to seeing him soon. He loved me. He gave his life for me. He's coming back for me and he wants to do exactly the same for every one of you here this evening. That's the promise that Jesus gives to us. He loves every one of us. And the question that I have for you this evening is this. Jesus is coming back soon and he's coming back for you. How many of you here this evening want to be ready for Jesus to come back? Well, praise God, friends. Praise God. Let's bow our heads as we close with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to be here this evening to study the great prophecies of your word. And we have just made a beginning. We have just scratched the surface of what there is. And there are so many more fascinating and detailed prophecies yet to be discovered. Father, we pray that you'll bless us with your Holy Spirit in a special way, that you'll be with us as we travel home, that you'll bring us back again tomorrow evening as we continue the study of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. been listening to an M24 media production of The Prophetic Code by speaker presenter Lyle Southwell. For more information, visit knowthecode.global or call 3ABN Australia Radio on 02 4973 3456.